Let us pray. Through weak, fallible human words, may we come to know your living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. For those of you who don't know, Caroline and I, she just left to use the restroom, uh, she is very pregnant. And we are having a son, and his name will be Jude, and I can't wait to meet him. His due date was last week, last Sunday, so we're seven days overdue now. And he could arrive at any moment. I keep trying to tell him I'd really like to not go to work this week, but we'll see. <laughs> Over the past few weeks, uh, not just because of these readings, but generally speaking, I've been meditating on the special bond between a father and a son because soon I get to experience that and I can't wait. Uh, it's a special and sacred relationship between the two. One of the expressions of this that I've seen uh, that really stuck with me was Team Hoyt, H-O-Y-T. Uh, it's a team made up of Dick Hoyt and his son Rick, and they, go, they are involved in Ironman uh, races and triathlons. And the thing is, Rick, the son, has uh, cerebral palsy. And if you watch videos, this father uh, pulls his son in a wheelchair or pedals him on a bike or pulls him in a special boat uh, as they race together. And together they've, they've raced in almost 1,100 races. And they don't run together anymore uh, but because they had to retire, but they were introduced into the Ironman Hall of Fame in 2008. But the thing about the relationship between this particular father and son that's always stuck with me is the way that this father would do anything for his son. And that's what fatherhood is supposed to look like. Which is why uh, the story of the sacrifice of Isaac can be so hard for us to read. God is asking a father to sever this bond with his son by sacrificing him. And, and on first read, to us, modern Westerners in the 21st century, it might offend our sensibilities to the point that it's bar borderline barbarous for us to read it. In the ancient world, though, such a savage practice as child sacrifice was popular and a normalized expression of worship. In his many journeys, Abraham most likely encountered people who did this. But the ending of the story, where God provides for Abraham and Isaac, sets Abraham's God, Yahweh, Elohim, apart from the false pagan gods because he provides. It's also true that God knew how this test was going to end before he began it. He knew that Isaac was not going to be killed no matter what. It's not as though God is wringing his hands through this passage like we might upon first read. God knew that Abraham would obey, and he knew that he was going to send an angel of the Lord to stop the sacrifice. At the beginning of the story, we see Abraham respond to God's call by saying, here I am. This was a common phrase used by many Israelites in scripture to signal a posture of submission to the divine. Genesis 46, 2, God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. Exodus 3, 4, when the Lord saw that he had, uh, when the Lord saw that he, Moses, had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. 1 Samuel 3, 4, the Lord called to Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel answered, here am I, 
Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Abraham's posture of submission is further confirmed by the fact that he does not respond to God's command regarding the immolation of Isaac, which is odd because Isaac is Abraham's child of promise, but it's even more odd because if you think back to previous stories, Abraham has not found it hard to argue with God. Think about the Sodom and Gomorrah account where Abraham becomes almost like a used car salesman in so far as he's bartering God down until, oh, if we can only find 10 righteous people, you'll spare the city. Or you can also think of the way that, ha- that Sarah and Abraham take initiative by Sarah giving Hagar her servant to Abraham as a way of fulfilling God's promise. They do so prematurely and without God's direction. However, at least in the Sodom and Gomorrah account, there are other people who are going to be judged by God. It's an external judgment. Perhaps Abraham knew that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah weren't ready to die because they were so wicked. Or maybe he just didn't want to see the wrath of God poured out on others. However, offering Isaac as a sacrifice was a signal that Abraham was willing to let go even that most sacred bond between father and son in order to follow and obey the will of God. So Abraham gets supplies and takes them with Isaac up to Mount Moriah. And as if the whole thing isn't dark enough, he makes Isaac carry the wood which will be used on the altar. Abraham's faith in God becomes clear in verse 8 when he tells Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The author of this story seems to favor and enjoy the suspense And he lets that anticipation build up until verse 10 when Abraham has his hand raised to kill Isaac and God, who's been silent since verse 2, intervenes through the angel of the Lord. Isaac is, of course, not sacrificed and a goat is caught in the thicket. So God provides a replacement for Isaac. Given the rich symbolism of this story, Christians through the centuries have been attracted to the typology that lies within it. In many ways, the story looks forward to and is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Isaac and Christ are both parallels of each other. Both are promised children of the covenant. Mount Moriah is the future location of the Israelite temple, which Christ also fulfills in the gospels. And Isaac is gonna be sacrificed on a mountain. And Jesus, of course, dies on the mountain of Golgotha. However, the ram also parallels Christ because it dies in the stead of another. And in fact, many church fathers saw the thicket in which the ram was caught as a symbol for the cross. These themes and images regarding sacrifice are picked up in our other readings from Mark and Romans as well. In fact, in Mark, uh, the prior reading, if if you go earlier in the chapter, Peter confessed that Jesus is the Messiah and is given much praise by Christ. He's called the rock. It's upon this rock that Christ will build his church. He's given the ability to bind and loose sins and given the keys to the kingdom. But here, it's shown that he doesn't quite get it, even after that. By suggesting Jesus ignored the sacrificial component of his mission that involves death, he was telling to Jesus to ignore the entire reason for his coming. So Jesus rebukes Peter strongly using pretty strong language. Get thee behind me, Satan. 
Then using his divine understanding of his mission, he lays out three important ideas for those who want to follow him. One, we must deny ourselves. Two, we must take up our crosses. And three, we must follow his chosen way. The whole incident causes us to recognize that the cross is the means by which we see the Messiah for who he truly is. In the cross, which is foolishness and a stumbling block to our natural selves, we see the ultimate reversal where death becomes life. The cross and Jesus' arms extended on the hard wood of that cross is an invitation where the Son of God bids all of us to participate in the divine life by following and living in the rhythm of that cross, denying ourselves, taking up our crosses, and following the way that he has trod. The reading from Mark makes us aware of this obligation to follow Christ, while our reading from Romans 8, which includes a beautiful hymn about the love of God, lays out the implications of Christ's work for us. It is the cross that justifies us, and no one can bring charges against us because Christ has paid all the debts that we owe. The cross demonstrates what Brennan Manning calls the furious love of God, from which we cannot be separated. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Karl Barth explains that the love of God is not a particular form of behavior within the sphere of human competence. It is the power and significance which God can bestow upon this or that form of human behavior through its relationship with him. The love of God, contrasted with the questionableness of our life, is our deepest reality. What Bart means is that the love of God is constant. It is the true, real thing. It burns away all the facades of our life. And it creates within us a new life. No created thing can stand in the way of the creator, which gives us, as believers, assurance. One of the beauties about sacramental or capital R real Christianity is that it embodies this assurance by bringing the past into the present. The sacrifice of Christ on Calvary is made present for us in the elements of bread and wine, which become the body and blood of Christ, where he is truly, physically, and bodily present. In the 1800s, the Catholic Church decided that they needed to release a document that said that Anglicans did not have valid orders. And one of the things that they explained was that we have an inadequate view of what happens during communion. And if you actually read the document, they accuse us of being Baptists, and we're not Baptists. So uh, one of our uh, forebearers, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Frederick Temple, wrote a document called Sipius Officio in which he responded to the Catholic document that had invalidated our orders and laid out what it is that Anglicans do believe happens at communion. You see, during the medieval period, this idea of, the, of Christ being present in the Eucharist and his sacrifice being made present in the Eucharist became an abused concept where people were buying and selling masses and the idea was maybe that Christ was re-crucified for us in the mass. Since then, the Catholic Church has left that behind, but a lot of the Reformation traditions were uncomfortable with language of sacrifice of the mass for that reason. It had been abused. 
But we do believe that the Eucharist is a perpetual sacrifice, just maybe in a different manner. So Frederick Temple explains, we continue a perpetual memory of the precious death of Christ, who is our advocate with the Father, and the propitiation for our sins according to his precept until his coming again. For first we offer the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and next we plead and represent before the Father the sacrifice of the cross, and by it we confidently entreat remission of sins and all other benefits of the Lord's passion for all the whole church. And lastly, we offer the sacrifice of ourselves to the creator of all things, which we have already signified by the oblations of his creatures. This is especially an appropriate concept for us to focus on during Lent, the time of year when we meditate on our response to the reality of God's love being extended to us through the cross, where we think about ways that we might pick up our own cross and follow him daily. In the Eucharist, he presents himself as a glorious sacrifice, and by going to the altar, we present ourselves broken sinners, though we are as people who want to take up our cross and who need to partake of the divine nature. God the Father held nothing back in redeeming us, not even his own son. So when we go to the altar, and as we live our lives after we go to the altar, we shouldn't leave anything back from him. One of the things that we do here, after, before, right before the gospel reading, you'll notice people cross themselves like this. And they're saying, may the gospel be in my mind and on my lips and in my heart. You may also remember certain Bible verses which talk about uh, giving God all your heart, your soul, and your mind, your body, your strength. We should give him, give him all of those things. And so that's a physical way of reminding ourselves that we will do that. But Lent is a time for us to recognize an antecedent and consequence. We remember that we are sinners in desperate need of God's mercy. And while that may sound pessimistic, it leads us to the consequence that is that we are reminded of the true source of life, which is outside of ourselves, contrary to what our culture tells us, it's in Christ that we find that strength, and we receive the strength that we need from the source, most profoundly in the Eucharist. So to close, I wanted to read a poem. I've been going through a book of poems through about Lent by a man named Malcolm Gweet, and this poem is called Stones into Bread. And here's what he says. The fountain thirsts, the bread is hungry here. The light is dark and word, and the word without a voice. When darkness speaks, it seems so light and clear. Now he must dare with us to make a choice. In a distended belly's cruel curve, he feels the famine of the ones who lose. He starves for those whom we have forced to starve. He chooses now for those who cannot choose. He is the staff and sustenance of life. He lives for all from one sustaining word. His love still breaks and pierces like a knife. The stony ground of hearts that never shared God gives through him what Satan never could, the broken bread that is our only food. Let us pray. To the table of thy sweet feast, O loving Lord Jesus, we come, presuming nothing on our own merits, but trusting in thy mercy and goodness. Our hearts and bodies are stained through sin, and our thoughts and lips have not been carefully kept. 
Wherefore, we turn to thee, the fountain of mercy. We hasten to be healed and flee under thy protection. We cannot stand before thee as our judge, and so we long to have thee as our savior. To thee we show our many wounds. To thee we disclose our shame. We know our sins, many and great, and though they are cause for fear, still we hope in thy mercies, which never come to an end. Look therefore on us with the eyes of thy mercy, O Lord Jesus Christ, eternal King, eternal God in human flesh, crucified for us and for our salvation. Hearken unto us whose trust is in thee. Have mercy on us full of misery and sin, thou fountain of mercy that will never cease to flow. Hail, victim of salvation, offered for us and for all upon the altar of the cross. Hail, noble and precious blood, flowing the wounds of our crucified Lord Jesus and washing away the sins of the whole world. Remember, O Lord, thy creatures, whom thou hast redeemed with thine own blood. It grieves us that we have sinned and we desire forgiveness and to amend our lives. Take from us, O merciful Father, all our sins and iniquities, and renew a right spirit within us, that we may be worthy to receive this great sacrament. Grant that this holy foretaste of the body and blood may be for the remission of our sins, the perfect cleansing of our faults, the driving away of shameful thoughts, and the renewal of good desires, strength for for works well-pleasing unto thee, and most sure protection of our souls and bodies against all evil and danger. Amen.